you open our hearts to your word, Lord. Amen. Mm. Amen. Hopefully you can hear me clearly enough. Do you want to turn to Job chapter 1? That's where we're going to read from in a minute. If you don't know where Job is, it's just before Psalms. Open up somewhere in the middle, you'll find Psalms. Job is just before it. And we're going to be right at the beginning. Because we are nearly at the end of our God's Wisdom series already. Unbelievable. Next week, Pete will bring our final um, sermon in this series of looking at God's Wisdom books, particularly Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and we've hinted towards it, read a couple of verses, but today we're going to be focusing on the book of Job. And the whole series, God's wisdom, is about recognizing God's wisdom, about recognizing and trusting God's ways within the complexities of life. We often try and do things our own way, think we come up with a clever plan and it goes horribly wrong. It's normally because we're not listening to God in life. Throughout, we've been learning lots of different things, haven't we, along the way? Over the past few weeks, we've been learning about acknowledging Jesus as the one good constant amidst this action of change around us. We've seen how to honour him with our priorities and our, our agendas and our time and so on. Uh, how we discern between good and bad, but also how we discern between good and best as well, and so on. Today, we're going to look at a question that at various times is on all of our lips. All of us have uttered it at some point, and all of us, I'm sure, in future will do so again. In September 2001, when high uh, crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City, um, there was a firefighter called Scott um, Davidson. He was last seen running into one of those buildings to go upstairs to rescue the people inside. And as he was last seen running up those stairs was when that tower came down. And his son, Pete Davidson, is... Um, Many of you may know his name. He's a very famous uh, comedian, Saturday Night Live. He's in Hollywood films and so on. Covered in tattoos, go, used to go out to the Kardashian. That's him. That's Pete Davison. That firefighter was his dad. And he says, as a result of losing his dad in the Twin Towers tragedy, as a teenager, he had, as a young lad, even pre-teens, he had suicidal thoughts. He was seven when his dad died. Even as a young, young lad, uh, um, becoming a teenager, he used to pull his hair out until he was bald and so on. Um, he still op very openly talks about it now. It's fascinating. It, it's really quite, quite immense of how he, how he does talk about it. But it just helps us recognise that this already huge tragedy extends far beyond even those awful news headlines. There are, there's a ripple effect for individuals who are affected and others suffer. Just to understand the extent of the suffering wasn't just that day. I know it keeps, it keeps breaking. It's, it's to do with frequencies in the Wi-Fi. It's a trouble. The already huge tragedy extends even beyond those headlines. And then in April 1992, um, a young woman who was just 16 at the time, she was already contending with curvature of the spine and associated pain. And on top of that, she broke her spine in a car accident, which resulted in 32 years and counting of spinal reconstruction, five metal rods, 12 metal screws, and constant pain every second of every minute of every day since. She's sitting at the back there. Just realise there is different kinds of suffering, aren't there? And then in, around, in 2019, in the Horn of Africa, so on the east side, the right-hand side, if you look, like looking at a map of Africa, the big bulbous bit, 
You've got around there, you've got um, Somalia, Kenya, Ethiopia, South Sudan, around there in 2019. That area, those nations entered into what has now become five consecutive years of severe to utter drought, which has meant catastrophic food shortages for hundreds of thousands of people, which has resulted in deaths and displacement and conflict and so on. And just this fortnight, after these four or five years, just this fortnight, the rains have come. But the rains have come in such a deluge that they are causing destruction and not the expected salvation. And this is infecting many, many friends in our wider network of churches. We're getting the reports through from fellow leaders over there. And then, of course, just one more. Over the past six weeks, what's been happening uh, in the Middle East, thousands of people have been, it's like about 12,000 and counting now, have been killed or abducted on both sides in Israel and Gaza, uh, many of them civilians. About half of those fatalities and casualties are children. You just, just feel it there, don't you? None of these stories I've just shared, and I could go on, couldn't I? None of these stories is more tragic than the other. To, to compare them, mass, mass deaths versus one individual who's having to live with great hardship and so on, to compare them is to miss or even dismiss, if you like, the pain in each one. Suffering is suffering. And we hate it for very good reason. And so naturally, the question on our lips is, well, where is God? And does he care? We've all asked it, and I'm sure we'll continue to. But this is the question that we can actually learn about from the heartbeat of the book of Job. We're going to listen to Job's story. I'm going to try and do all of Job in 35 minutes. Here we go. Yeah. We've got to ask, why is this book here? It's not the happiest of books. Anybody here actually read the book of Job? There's a few. Yeah, oh, quite a few. More than a thought. That's good. We've got to ask, why is this book here? And therefore, how does it help us? If it's there, God put it there for a reason. How does it help us? It's the, it's the oldest book in the Bible. Now, obviously, Genesis deals with earlier events, <laughs> deals with creation. But it was written later by Moses. This is about 4,000 years old, this book. Uh, and it, cont it contends with this ageless concern, as I've just mentioned. And it tells the tale of a man of God. He's a husband, he's a father, he's a hugely successful businessman. He had everything. He had everything. And he's on the receiving end of calamity that you would not wish on your worst enemy. And yet, we can learn so much from this story from two directions. Firstly, from Job, because we can look at Job's faithfulness, which is not some dogged, stiff upper lips, I must, I must not crumble, I'm not going to crumble, I'm going to stand firm in this. He doesn't do that. I mean, he does cry out in despair. We'll look at that in a moment. But his faithfulness is a dependency on God's mercy. We can learn from him, but we can also learn from when God finally speaks up. God, we can learn from God's answer when he finally does speak. Now, like I say, we don't have a huge amount of time. So let's crack on and let's start reading the beginning of Job's story. We're going to read all of chapter 1 and then a little bit on, from chapter 2. It's all going to come up on the screen and a couple of bits I'll explain on the way. First of all, Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. 
There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. He's not sacrificing on their behalf. He's concerned for their well-being, their spiritual well-being. Thus, Job did continually. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Let me just explain, sons of God. The language used there in the, in the original script is um, the sons of Elohim, is the sons of the mighty. A few people seem to think that's human elders at the time who were jealous of, of his success. The larger majority consensus, it's the huge indication is this, this is a divine council of beings. This is something that is happening in the heavenly realm, which we don't fully understand. You look at the creatures in Revelation, I've no idea what's going on, but something's happening. <laughs> there, there's more to the, almost like the hierarchy, if you like, of the spiritual realm that we don't get. But there seems to be a snippet, a, a snapshot, a scene from what's happening in that realm. And these beings, this divine council, and Satan, the accuser, that's what the word, Satan is in his name, he's Lucifer, Satan, Satan is the accuser, it's his title actually, he's snuck in, he's there as well. So then verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Now we need to pay attention to that, hell is not Satan's HQ, he doesn't sit in a big posh office beyond a big posh mahogany desk sending his minions out to earth to go and do their naughty stuff that's not how it works he was cast out from heaven along with the rebellious angels with him cast down to earth earth is his hq and while the bible that's why the bible talks about he's here and he's prowling around like a lion looking to devour he's not in hell hell is reserved for his future he's here on earth and this is what satan's been doing i've, I've been going around on the earth verse 8 and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. You can see here, God is content that Job's heart, Job's devotion to the Lord is not because of the stuff he gets from God. Oh yeah, I love God because he gives me nice things. God is content that Job's heart of devotion to the Lord is because he loves the Lord. And this is what he's discussing with Satan. Verse 13, now there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were ploughing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans, this is a human enemy, fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. For the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now the story continues in chapter 2. We're going to read a few verses in a minute. When, as if all that wasn't bad enough, God and Satan have another chat about affecting Job himself. So then what happens is in chapter 2 from verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so on top of losing his livestock and all his servants and all his children, Job has now lost his health and his wife's support. This man is now literally, completely kind of, um, destitute. And then to make matters worse, <laughs> along come three friends, I put friends in quotes, along come three friends who are not much help at all, to the point where all their gassing around him, chit-chat with him, in Job chapter 16 verse 2, Job says, I've heard many such things, miserable comforters are you all. He tears a strip off them, and rightly so, because for the, the four of them, Job and his three companions... They spend over 30 chapters toing and froing with rightful lament on Job's behalf, and in which it says he does not sin, but a load of old waffle on his friend's behalf, until in chapter 38, God speaks up. Now, we'll explore what happens then. We're going to look at that, what God says. We'll do that in a short while. But for now, let's just spend a bit more time in this place of lament and confusion, Mainly because it's what we're good at. When seriously, I mean, naturally, when trauma comes, our gut response is being bewildered and bereaved, isn't it? When tragedy befalls our general experience as humans at large, is about uh, immediately our immediate response is about weeping for our loss and, and asking why it's happened. That's, that's what we do, isn't it? So let's spend a little while longer in this place, in this portion of the book. And then we'll listen to what God says. Let's look at the human response, and then we'll look at God's response. Okay? Here we go. 
the human response. Let's look at what Job is doing here. Now, firstly, we do actually, to help with some context for this, we do need to recognise there are two worlds of simultaneous interconnected activity for us to unpack. There's the spiritual work, uh, spiritual world at work, as well as the physical world. And we do need to acknowledge that both of these are heavily interconnected. They're both heavily involved. Because, um, I mean, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, our original ancestors, the first humans, when they sinned, when they turned from God, thought they knew better and chose to go their own way, when that happened, and the whole perfect cosmos got broken as a result, that wasn't just a spiritual thing, but that wasn't just a physical thing either. It was both. I mean, in the same way that you and I are not bodies with a spirit in it. And we are not spirits with a biological taxi to get our personhood from one room to the other. Our bodies are more than that, aren't they? We are body and spirit. That's what makes you, you. So when your physical health is failing, it affects your mental and spiritual well-being, doesn't it? And the other way around, the flip side, is that our spirits affect our bodies. Our mental and emotional and spiritual health affects our immune systems and our digestion and our blood pressure and our skin and so on. It comes out in other ways, doesn't it? And in a related way, if you take that to a kind of more macro scale, it's in a similar way that when Adam and Eve sinned and there was an immediate fracture in the spiritual realm between God and humanity as a result, that also threw a spanner in the works of the physical realm that we as humans have been given spiritual responsibility over. And so sin affected and has since continued to affect not just our relationship with our maker and our hearts, and as a result, you humans, man continues to do evil. It's never stopped, has it? It's still there. Man, we all continue to act selfishly and hurt ourselves and hurt others and so on. But it's also broken our physical bodies functioning as well when it comes to disease and uh, cancer and the effects of aging and so on. But it's also affected the Earth's physical systems as well when it comes to the animal kingdom and ecosystems and pandemics and climate and so on. Which means that we are all of us, none of us are immune, we are all um, at the receiving end of moral evil, the actions of man, but also natural evil, the the effects of a broken creation. We're at the mercy of both, aren't we? And all this is just to explain that we can't separate the two, the spiritual from the physical. Now, I'm not saying, please do not mishear me, I am not saying that every sickness or tsunami has a particular sin behind it. Don't hear that. But I am saying that all brokenness that we experience is ultimately because of sin's existence. Does that make sense? Yeah? Good, good. So with that in mind, and that context, we can now return to Job's story. Because I'm not, I'm not sure we'll, we can ever fully understand this wager between God and Satan, if you like. We probably shouldn't attempt to. The Bible is very, very content. It's another, more the more reason to love it. The Bible is very content to not feel obliged to always explain itself or, or, or make its readers happy. It doesn't do that. It's like, is everything okay? Can I explain that in a more palatable manner? Is it all right? It doesn't. It doesn't. God's word is sufficient to sometimes just say it like it is. This happened. 
We need to be okay with that. And you discover a bit more of that posture, if you like, when God speaks up at the end of the book in a minute. But this, this is here for a reason, nevertheless, isn't it? Um, so we just need to ask, what is God telling us, even if he's not explaining everything? Well, again, with this whole context of spiritual and physical, the, the mechanics of the spiritual realm are vastly beyond our full comprehension. But what we can acknowledge is that there is a hierarchy of beings that exist on a whole other plane to what we exist in in terms of our literal perception. And these beings have been at war with God since before time due to their own rebellion. And a third of these angels, they fell to earth. You can see it in Revelation chapter 12. It talks about a third of the stars falling. A third of the angels fell to earth and they continue to prowl, looking to cause havoc before their ultimate destined demise. This is the reality. The Bible just presents it like it is. Which is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need to not be ignorant of this. All the more reason why, if you haven't seen Steph Liston's two um, talks from our leadership conference recently, I sent out the links again in the email this week, the new links. If you haven't watched them, watch them. That is a timely message that talks about this. We need to not be ignorant of this. We're not looking for the devil under every rock, but neither should we be ignorant, and we need to be alert. Now, like I say, not all sickness or incident has an evil spirit behind it. Sometimes it's a consequence of universal brokenness. But we also need to acknowledge that there is a spiritual dimension that does interact with ours. And whenever you remember that, always, to give you confidence, always remember that God's army is twice the size. If a third of the angels fell from heaven... God's still got two-thirds, literally twice the size. We can enjoy that. And also, we can't actually fully fathom how much behind the scenes we are protected from their ploys too, as God's people. Romans 8, verse 38 onwards, there's neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, you are secured. We do not need to be fearful of the spiritual world, of the paranormal world, anything like that. We don't need to be fearful of it at all. In him, we are safe. But sometimes it seems God allows us to walk a certain path that in his eternal wisdom is the better path. While from our angle, it looks and feels like the absolute worst one. So I'm not going to make excuses for God. It's not my place to. Nor am I going to reduce this to, well, you're going through trauma, but it's for the best. I'm not, please don't <laughs> mishear me. I'm trying to add as much nuance as I can here. We just need to appreciate quite what's afoot and quite what God's doing here without trivialising it either. There is pain and God does care and we should care. But I do know that at the very least we need to recognise three things. Firstly, we need to recognise a God who is eternally good. James chapter 1 verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is good, he always has been, he always will be and it's impossible for him to be any different. 
We need to recognize there is a God here who is eternally good. Second one, we need to recognize and acknowledge a God who is eternally in control. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is eternally good, and he's eternally in control. And when you put those two things together, those two truths together, he is forever good and forever in control, we discover a wonderful third truth, that God will never abandon his people. So I love Psalm 125, verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Let me read that again. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. We can rest in that and we can enjoy that. And we can be, feel safe in that and be confident in that and step forward out of that. Not out, out of it, but from that understanding. And so for whatever reason, God has deemed that this is to be Job's story for us to learn from 4,000 years later. And in this, Job does cry out. Like I said, he's not some stoic. Chapter 19, verse 7, Job says, Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. Anyone relate to that? We cried that before, haven't we? That kind of thing. What's going on? But just to remember, God will not abandon his people. But in that moment, that is what Job felt. So understandably. And it's what we sometimes feel, and it's okay to feel like that. God doesn't have a problem with that. Remember, all along, Job did not sin. Because even Jesus, who never stopped being the eternally beloved Son of God, he still cried out in his suffering on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He reflected it himself. That is a cry that had already been ringing out for thousands of years on many people's lips before that moment, including Job's, and it has continued to be on people's lips for thousands of years ever since. And Jesus, God himself, in his humanity, he echoed that same cry in his own unimaginable suffering. Sinless God uttered that. It's okay to feel like that sometimes. Even God himself experienced the same pain and confusion while he identified with us just as he was suffering for us. Jesus did that and he never sinned either. Don't beat yourself up if you feel like that and you talk to God about that. It's okay. He's fine with it. Like I say, in the same way, within Job's suffering or confusion, we discover that at no point does he sin. He doesn't dishonor God. At the end of Job chapter 1, verse 21, Job says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it says, In all this, Job did not sin. And then at verse 10 in Job chapter 2, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And then God even affirms that again, right at the very end of the book, in chapter 42, he slates off Job's friends, puts them in their place. He says, You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. It's okay to lament. It's all right. When I mean lament, what I mean by that word is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. It's okay. 
God's fine with it. The Bible upholds this rightful posture of valid and rightful lament and difficulties alongside still honouring God in his goodness and his provision. If you read the book of Psalms, a third of them are songs of lament. In their entirety, two-thirds of them contain lament. It's okay. There is a place for rightful cries of lament when it means it turns our faces towards God and not from him. And that's the key. Remember Job, when he heard the news about his children dying and so on, what did he do? He worshipped. We need to pay attention to that, don't we? I'm not always sure that's my first instant reaction. It needs to be. I've got a lot to learn here. Ronald Reagan, he, uh, many of you remember him. He was the US president for two terms in the 80s. Uh, before that, he was a Hollywood actor for a long time, wasn't he? He had a strong Christian faith. And um, he li- it, it, like Job in many ways, is a successful man living in a fortified place with supreme executive power, wasn't he? But when his wife Nancy was diagnosed with breast cancer, he was forced to his knees in the Oval Office when he recognised his, his absolute dependency on God. He dropped to his knees in the Oval Office in prayer a lot. And he wrote this. This is what Ronald Reagan says. For all the powers of the President of the US, there were some situations that made me feel helpless and very humble. All I could do was pray. And I did a lot of praying for Nancy during the next few weeks. He turned it into worship. What he was doing, he was stepping into the wonderful truth of God's wisdom. Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. As God's people, we can trust the Lord's promise. It says in Psalm 91, verse 14, I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. That's God's promise over us. Amen. Which then brings us to a perfect moment where we can look at what happens when God speaks up. That's the human response. Let's look at God's response. Three things that God does here that we can learn from and the Bible shows us. Firstly, God does speak. God speaks. Because God can sometimes seem silent in our suffering, can't he? Where, where are you? That does not mean he doesn't care. And it doesn't mean that he'll never speak. Sometimes it's because we're not listening. <laughs> Let's be honest. I'm having a terrible time, so I'm just burying myself in social media. I'm surrounding myself with people. I'm getting distracted. I'm just watching lots of telly. I'm keeping busy. I'm trying to keep myself going. But, and I've been, I have been busy ranting at him. I've been busy, and it's like, I can't hear him. It's like, slow your heart down. As Bob was teaching us last week, there is a place for quietness. So here, we often need some space. Sometimes our hearts are too busy. Just be aware of that. But sometimes we're not hearing God because it's God's, it's the fact that God's sense of timing and his provision is not the same as our expectation of what that should be. At no point does that ever change the fact that he, he is eternally, unchangeably good. That never changes. And eventually, Job and his mates have been going around in circles for 30 chapters, over, giving it all that. 
In this book of 42 chapters, God speaks up in chapter 38. And when he does, he doesn't do it with easy answers, which is worth noting. When it comes to suffering, we want soundbite answers that fix it, don't we? Why has this not happened? I've been praying for my loved ones for years that they'll get healed or they'll get saved and it hasn't happened. We just want that soundbite answer that goes, all right, thanks. God doesn't do that. In fact, what God does <laughs> just turns up with many more questions back at Job. Things like all the way through chapter 38. Because where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Um, I can't remember. I have to check my diary. Because have you commanded the morning? Have you caused the dawn to know its place? Because have you walked the depths of the ocean? Can, can you move the stars? You ask all these kind of questions. It's fascinating. There's a, a Frederick Buchner was a US preacher and an author, and he says this about Job, about this chapter. He goes, God doesn't explain, he explodes. It's true. He, he, he continues, he asks Job who he thinks he is anyway. He says that to try to explain the kind of things that Job wants explained would be like trying to explain Einstein to a shellfish. God doesn't reveal his grand design, he reveals himself. I love that. God does not reveal his grand design, which is what we want. Instead, he reveals himself. And as a result of that, in chapter 40, verse 4, Job goes, I am of small account. And basically, paraphrasing, he goes, I'll, I'll shut up and listen. And then God challenges Job. He continues. He challenges Job to run the universe for a day. Do you want to have a go? Do, do you want to have a go? At, be, do you want to be the judge of other men? And it's like, well, uh, actually, maybe not. Now you put it that way. And God then continues to uh, further with um, details about the vastness of creation, specifically about two creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, which seem to be dinosaurs we don't have anymore because of climate change and the flood and all that. They're just non-existent. We've got bones, haven't we? Look at the Natural History Museum. They seem to be that kind of creature. These are basically what God's doing is just explaining, do you realise quite what I'm capable of, even just even in the physical realm, let alone the spiritual? Like, do you realise the vastness of me as maker in the first place? And each time he's making it very clear that his power and ability is far above, and therefore his thoughts and his ways are too. And therefore pointing out that he, God, is the one who truly knows and embodies all good wisdom and we need to listen to that when that is how God speaks up on this we need to listen to it it's not always what we're after is it not always what we want which then leads us to the second one God speaks but also we need to learn that God provides Tim Keller um, US pastor who passed away this year he said God will either give us what we ask or Give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. That's brilliant. God will either give us what we ask or he'll give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. And God will never ask us to journey through something he will not provide for. Remember, he's eternally, unchangeably good. He will never ask us to journey through something he won't provide for. And sometimes he will provide in terms of literal or physical means like healing or like money, sometimes full, sometimes partial and so on. But also in terms of enlarged capacity, Jenny and I have known that recently, stuff we've had to contend with. You look back and go, 
How did I get through that? And people go, well done, Steve, for your wisdom. It's like, I, don't, I was winging it. <laughs> but God gives us what we need for the moment sometimes. And you look back and go, okay, God sustained me. Gave me the energy and the capacity to get through that. It gives us supernatural peace and joy in moments when that's the last thing you think you'd have. God does provide this. He gives us guidance. He gives us reassurance. He gives us encouragement. But most notably, he gives us his very personhood. Most particularly, he gives us himself. And Philip Yancey, he's written a book called The, the Question That Never Goes Away. Uh, John very kindly lent me a copy. It's brilliant. Uh, talking about this kind of thing. And he, he, this is what Philip Yancey says in it. He said, a university researching pain, they recruited volunteers to test how long they could keep their feet in buckets of freezing water. But they observed that when a companion was allowed in the room with them, the volunteer could endure the cold twice as long as those who suffered alone. And he continued that the researchers concluded the presence of another caring person doubles the amount of pain a person can endure. And to know Christ is to know the dearest, closest friend you can ever imagine and beyond that. One who understands what it means to experience utter loss and pain. He's not going, yeah, I know, but you don't really. He really does. And he is one who will place an arm around us in comfort and beneath us in supernatural support. There is no one more faithful, more dependable, or more compassionate than Jesus Christ. Full stop. Remember that God's, he may not have spoken up yet, but God hasn't been absent here. James chapter 5 verse 11 says, You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He's not been uninvolved. And there is no one that we need to depend upon or seek out in trials more than God himself. And then we can echo what Job says, chapter 42, verses 2 and 5. He said, I have uttered what I did not understand. I had heard of you, but now I see. He sees him for who he truly is. God speaks, God provides, and finally, God restores Whatever we face, and I'm not going to diminish anything of what any of you guys have gone through or might be going through right now. But whatever we face, as his people, he will restore us. Either in this life or definitely beyond. God is very gracious, answering Job's prayers to be merciful to his rubbish friends. He does. Job's like, will you forgive my friends? And God goes, I will. He does. But then he restores Job's own family situation and his fortunes and he gives him twice as much as he had before. And the final words of the book are, Job died full of days. We too may receive whatever's going on in our lives or has done. We may receive earthly restoration in this life. Some of us, I'm sure, we, I know for a fact we have got those kind of stories between us in many ways, whether it's full or partial restoration in different ways of physical health or financial or you know, relational, whatever it might be. It does happen. But as God's people, we can all depend on the absolute guaranteed hope that in Jesus Christ we will receive full restoration of our health in our resurrected bodies. 
we will receive unhindered communion with our Creator, with zero tears and zero shame and unending joy, with nothing to shake that ever, 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 ever again. That day is coming, and when that day does come, that day will not stop, ever. That is coming. But in the meantime, we've just got to ask ourselves, where is my attention? Is my attention simply on what is in front of me, what's under my nose, what's bothering me? Or is my attention on the one who is ahead of me and who is sustaining me? We've got to ask ourselves that question, haven't we? We can get so, and this is the thing, if you remember one thing, we can get so caught up in the why of it all when we miss the substance of it all. So I'll come to close now. In, in his wisdom, just remember that God doesn't always explain things to us, but he does comfort us, he leads us, he guides us, he shapes us, he protects us, he shelters us, he promises us, he provides for us, he secures us, and he loves us. If you are in him, you are so safe. We, we do need to be prepared for discomfort. As in not always expecting it, but not be surprised by it. Yeah, because it's simply when it comes to the natural consequences of living in a broken world. Discomfort comes with that, doesn't it? But we are also, as God's people, we are called to obedience. And the world will oppose what and who we stand for. In that respect, we need to be prepared for discomfort. It's a reality, isn't it? What it means to be obedient for the one who loves us even more than we can ever imagine. That comes with stuff, doesn't it? But he'll protect us, he'll carry us. But also sometimes we need to be prepared for discomfort when God is contending with our own purity. That can be a bumpy road as well, can't it? Remember what David was teaching us a few weeks ago about delighting in him above all things. That's the key, that's where it starts. Because then we can sing whatever we face, whatever we go through. Matt Redmond's, we're not going to be singing it later, but Matt Redmond's song, Blessed Be Your Name. There's the verse that goes, Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. It says, you give and take away. These are Job's words. You give and take away, but my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Let me finish with one more verse and then I want to pray for us. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17 says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Everything's gone. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. I want to pray for us, but it's also Remembrance Sunday. It'd be good just to spend a couple of minutes just in silence, and then I'll pray just to recognise those who have lost more than probably most of us, if not all of us in this room, can probably imagine in some ways. People have lost lives, limbs, in terms of protecting their neighbours. 
around the world, but obviously from our perspective, the United Kingdom, Great Britain. It'd be good to reflect on that, those that give themselves for us, that we might be safe and secure. But not just for them, for their families. Like I said earlier about the great big tragedies, there's a ripple effect for many, many more around that as well, and their individuals suffer. Let's just honour that for a couple of minutes, I'll time it, and then I'll do a prayer for them, but also for us as well. We'll start now. Father of all, we remember your holy promise and look with love on all your people. On this day, we especially ask that you would comfort all who have suffered during war, those who've returned scarred by warfare, those who've waited anxiously at home, those who returned wounded and disillusioned, those who mourned, those communities that are diminished and suffered loss. Remember too, those who acted with kindly compassion, those who bravely risked their own lives for their comrades and those who in the aftermath of war have worked tirelessly for a more peaceful world. And as you remember them, remember us, O oh Lord. Grant us peace in our time and a longing for the day when people of every language, race and nation will be brought into the unity of Christ's kingdom. Amen. Lord, you are the God who does not abandon us in our suffering, but you speak to us, you provide for us, and you restore us. We look forward to the day when there will be no suffering and no sadness, only made possible by you, through you, and for you. 
Help us to lean on you. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.